Thank you for listening to this message from Northwest Hills Community Church in Corvallis, Oregon. You can learn more about our church at nwhills.com. Today, Pastor Josh Karstensen continues a series called What is Going On, where we read the entire Bible in a year. The book of Ezra takes place 70 years after Israel's exile. Around 50,000 Israelites return home and start rebuilding the temple, but God's presence remains missing. The people stop building for 20 years until Haggai, speaking for God, inspires them to complete the temple. But God's presence still doesn't dwell in the temple. It's a story of longing and recognizing that God no longer dwells in a physical building, but in our hearts. After the message, read the book of Ezra. Also, check out nwhills.com slash hub, that's H-U-B, for additional resources like book overviews, reading plans, and application questions. Now, here's today's message. If you got a Bible, let's go. We're going to be in the book of Ezra today. If you have a black Bible near you, it's on page 389. Um, We will also be jumping back and forth to the book of Haggai, which in the same Bible is on page 791. Uh, While you are going there, we're going to kind of refresh and re-ask our question that we've been asking all year. And that is a question of what is going on. And it's a question that we find ourselves asking a lot Um, probably most of us at some point over the next couple weeks in the Christmas season, when we're around our families, we'll be asking what is going on. Like if your family is anything like mine, there will be multiple times, whether in good times or hard times, where you will say, what is happening right now? Um, It is something that we find ourselves looking around the world again and again, asking, God, what is going on? Right? What is going on with our economy? What's going on with geopolitics? What's going on with all kinds of things that we just like we see and they're confusing and we're wondering, God, what are you doing through all this? I found myself uh, kind of following the World Cup. I don't know. How many of you have been following World Cup? Some of you? Yeah, a number of you. Uh, something I found pretty interesting early on uh, in the World Cup was some of this dialogue back and forth between kind of morality and ethics of different countries. You had a kind of a small handful of European countries, I think there was eight or nine of them, who wanted to wear um, armbands with a, uh, a heart and a rainbow insignia on it, uh, and it was called the One Love Armband. And I quote this, um, this was to celebrate what they said was diversity, inclusion, and tolerance. Um, well, the Arab countries, primarily the host country, was not so um, excited about the message that they were going to say because they don't believe in these same values. And they were saying, no, you cannot wear these types of things. And so you have this back and forth of like, well, who's going to be more tolerant of who here? Are we going to be tolerant of other people's different worldviews? And there's this back and forth. And it kind of makes you laugh and wonder who gets to make the rules Turns out host country gets to make the rules in this case, but other places aren't so happy, right? I don't know if you saw it as well, but right before the World Cup started, um, the host country says, no alcohol in any of our stadiums. And the rest of the world's going like, how am I supposed to watch a sport that can end in a tie without drinking, right? And so everyone's just like, what's going on here? Who gets to decide, Right, we've asked the what's going on question about like church as a whole, kind of coming out of the pandemic, right? We've said, man, about a third of the church in America has walked away from regular Sunday attendance. Like, what's going on with that? Like, is this pe- a people who had a passionate love for the Lord? Or is this a group of people who just like, they came to church out of routine and habit and now are nowhere to be found? But we're asking through all these questions, God, what are you doing through this? 
And we're kind of, as we're asking these what's going on questions, we're looking at the Bible from beginning to end, really seeing that people are people are people. We are the same today as we were a few thousand years ago. The problems and the desires, the longings of our hearts have not changed. Right? Like we have a lot more conveniences in our modern world, but our souls are the same. And we're going to see a God who is perpetually working through people saying, I have something better for you than what you think you want for yourself and than what the world has to offer. And we're going to see this over and over. Like mankind's going to try to live life one way and God's going to say, no, I got a better way for you. Right? Mankind's going to say, you do you. You chase after what you want. And God's going to say, no, I have an upside down backwards economy. Right? To get first, you got to be last. Right? To get filled up, you actually need to pour out, which is so backwards in how the world thinks. And God's perpetually saying, follow me. I have something better, better than anything that you've longed for, better than anything that you can imagine. Today we're going to ask another what is going on question. And this question is what is going on with this gathering? Right? It, what is going on with church as you and I know it? We come here from all different places. We come here once a week. We come on a Sunday morning. And what's going on with this gathering? It's interesting because sometimes I leave here and I think, man, this gathering was so good. There's, there's moments where the, the gathering is so profound and it feels like God was working in so many beautiful ways. And, and there's all these different metrics and all these different reasons why sometimes we leave here and we go, oh, that was amazing. And then let's be honest, sometimes we leave church and, and we go, eh, never happens to anyone here. Okay, that's great. The rest of you, it's all good all the time. But there are times and seasons where for whatever reason, we leave church and we go like, yeah, it really didn't feel that good. Like what for, and for whatever reason, maybe, maybe I didn't connect with the music and I don't know, maybe the speaker I didn't like and, and maybe no one said anything to me and maybe the pancakes were terrible and maybe whatever. Maybe it just felt like it was kind of like, eh. So what makes church great and what makes this gathering sometimes feel so great and sometimes feel like, man, it could have been a lot better. Um, I've been thinking about this question a lot recently because recently I was in a place where you couldn't have a gathering like this. Um, I've lived all over or I've been all over the world. I've lived overseas for multiple years and never have I ever until last month been to a place where we literally could not do this. And so when you think about the fact that this is prohibited in certain places, it makes me think even more, like, what's so important about this? What's so unique about this? And again, why is this such a both beautiful thing at times and sometimes such a kind of, eh, I'm not sure how great of a thing this is. Today, through the story of Ezra, we are going to see a people who were away from this gathering for 70 years. So we're going to see what it looks like for a people to go back to a place to restore their worship that they had at once. And we're going to see ultimately a longing to be in the presence of God. We're going to see what it looked like for a people to go back and try to rebuild something, to belong together, to have a worship uh, unlike what they had 70 years in exile in Babylon. Ultimately, we're going to look at the people who go back and who rebuild and restart, but we're going to see that when God's presence isn't there, it doesn't matter if you show up. It doesn't matter what kind of gathering you have, that if God doesn't do a work in your heart, 
It's all for nothing, and we're going to see this through the story of Ezra this week, and then again in Nehemiah next week, as this story really is one story that we're splitting up into two weeks, both Ezra and Nehemiah. So let's open up to Ezra and see a people who are going to restart. We're going to see a people who rebuild. We're going to see people who long to be in God's presence, who long to have this type of gathering, who went for 70 years without it because ultimately what they had was destroyed. Now think with me last week, we, we talked about what this, um, what this destruction was all about. We talked about this nation that God was like really blessing for years, this nation of Israel. And ultimately they turn their back on God. God leaves his presence from them and they get destroyed by Babylon. And so we're talking about, you know, we use the word exile, but the reality is a vast majority of them were killed. Right, a vast majority of the city is absolutely destroyed, and a small remnant of about 10,000 of them are taken as slaves to Babylon for some 70 years. And so today we're going to look at what it looks like for this nation to go back and rebuild. In order for us to talk about what it looks like to rebuild, though, I want to talk about God's original heart for him dwelling with his people. And to do that, we got to go back about a thousand years to go to the book of Exodus. Now, you don't need to turn there, but let's think of Exodus 19 and 20. So for 400 years, God's people were in slavery, which is easy to come off the tongue. It's easy to say, but just in really hard to get our minds around what that would look like to be a people who had nothing for 400 years who had no land, who had no culture, who had no law, who had no hope. You had 400 years of the slavery. And then through Moses, God frees them. And it's interesting. We get to Exodus chapter 19 and 20, and we're going to see God's heart to be with his people. So he frees them, and then they cross the Red Sea, and they do all the things, and he takes them to the base of Mount Sinai. And God draws a perimeter around the base, and he says, I'm going to meet with you. And he meets with all the people, and in an audible voice, God speaks to the masses, and he gives the Ten Commandments. He starts it out, and he says, I am the Lord your God. He says, I brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And he goes on, and he gives the rest of the Ten Commandments. But you got to remember this scene. If you remember reading, the scene is that the mountain is filled with smoke. There's fire right? There's earthquakes, there's thunder, there's lightning, and God's wanting to be with the people, but the people are terrified. And I can't imagine being in the scene where you're hearing this voice and you're seeing all the power and the might, and and the people are saying, like, I don't know if I can be near that. I am a sinful person. This feels incredibly dangerous for me. And God's saying, no, I want to be with you. And the people said, no, we're afraid. Moses, would you be our intermediary? Moses, would you go and talk to God? We'll listen to you, Moses, but I don't want to be near God's presence because that's dangerous for me. And it's interesting because from this moment forward, God in his grace says, okay, I will speak through Moses. Moses, you speak to the people. But God still wants to dwell with his people, but he's got to do it in a unique way. And so what he says to Moses and what he says to the people, he says, I'm going to veil myself to you and I'm going to give myself my holy special presence to you in what we're going to call a tabernacle, in a temple. He says, wherever you go, I will be with you in this tent-like setting in the tabernacle. And so they build this tabernacle. And at the very end of Exodus, chapter 40, God's presence ascends on this temple. We read this at the very end of Exodus, chapter, 30, chapter 40, 
verse 34. It says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And from that moment forward, we have a long history of people going to a place to try to be near the presence of God. You think about what church was like. Church for them was this, we're going to come to the temple. We're going to come to the tabernacle. We are going to sacrifice and we are going to be near God's presence. And that's where they went to be near the presence of God. God's presence also dwelt on specific people for specific times. We see this in King Saul. We see this in King David. We see this in King Solomon. And then ultimately with Solomon, Solomon builds a full-time temple. No longer a temporary structure called the tabernacle. He builds a temple, a structure, and God's presence dwells in that temple. Right? We read this this last week. If you read the book of Second Chronicles, we read this moment in chapter 7 where God's presence fills this temple. I was in the youth last week with the junior hires, and they were reading this. And to hear little kids read this was awesome. But um, hear what happens as God's presence dwells in this temple. This is Second Chronicles 7, chapter, or Second Chronicles 7, verse 1. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer... Fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So picture this if you can. They build this magnificent building. You've got the altar. They're sacrificing, and God's presence dwells here in a very tangible, very profound way. And for 500 years, In order to be near the Lord, in order to be near his glory, people would gather just like you and I are gathering right now, and God's presence would be there. Well, you fast forward 500 years later, God's presence leaves from people being disobedient. Babylon comes in, absolutely annihilates all the people, stands about 10,000 of them. They level the temple, they level the altar, it's all gone, and they exile them 900 miles away to Babylon. A four months journey on foot. So no longer do you have a city. No longer do you have a culture. No longer do you have a temple. You no longer have worship. But most importantly, no longer do you have God's presence. And for 70 years, they're in Babylon. And God made a promise to them as they went there. If you know the kind of famous verse in Jeremiah 29, 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you. If you go to the verse before that, God says to them, hey, you're going to be here for 70 years. After 70 years, you're going to go back. You're going to go back to, it, to Jerusalem, and you're going to rebuild. And then we love to steal chapter uh, or verse 11 and apply it to our own lives. Like, I know the plans I have for you. You're going to win your soccer game, and you're going to have fun with your kids over Christmas. has nothing to do with any of that and everything to do with God making a promise that 70 years later, they would go back and worship. And that's where we pick it up in Ezra chapter 1. 70 years later, here's the moment. So if you can, would you stand with me? We're going to read Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. Seventy years have gone by. We're going to restore. We're going to rebuild. We're longing for God's presence. This is Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, Persia had recently conquered Babylon, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. 
Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with you and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of this place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can grab a seat. This is one of those moments where you realize that God is going to do whatever God wants to do, whether people obey him or not. Because here you have at the mouth of a pagan king who does not worship God, he is saying, go and rebuild a house for the Lord. Which is pretty fascinating. Like, let that settle in. Let that think like God can work through obedient people who love him. And God can work through stubborn people who hate him. And that's what happens here. And so we get this, this moment here where this group of people are going to go back. Now think with me, if you've been in a place for 70 years, everything comfortable to you is here. Right? You've got your job, you've got your kids, you've got your grandkids. Like you're going to your great-grandkids soccer games at this point. You're enjoying life here. Why would I go somewhere else? Why would I go back to this place 900 miles away to a people I do not know? I'll tell you why. There's two reasons. One, you're old enough that you remember what God's presence is like. You remember what the temple is like. You remember what being with the Lord is like. And two, you wonder what it's like. You've heard stories of a people who said God's presence was there. And for 70 years, you've been in an exile place. You've been a slave and you're thinking, maybe I can find freedom. And I wonder what it would be like to feel the presence of God. And so you get a small remnant of people. You get about 50,000 people. This group, people group had grown significantly over 70 years. And you get a small remnant who says, we're going to go back and we're going to rebuild. And this happens as you read your Bible this week. In chapters 1 through 3, Zerubbabel, he's the leader. He takes the group of people back and they start to rebuild. And they start with the altar. And the altar is at the center of the temple. And they rebuild this altar and they start sacrificing on it. But God's presence still doesn't seem to be there. And so as they're rebuilding the altar, they say, okay, well, let's rebuild the rest of it. So they rebuild the foundations of the temple and they get the whole thing done, the whole foundation of the temple. They've got the altar. They've got the footprint of the original building. And you get this moment in chapter 3, starting in verse 10, where some people are thrilled because it's really exciting and some people are distraught because God's presence still doesn't seem to be there. Follow along in chapter 3, verse 10. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. Which is interesting because those words are the same words that Solomon said 500 years earlier as God's presence came there. So they're invoking this longing for God's presence to be there. Continue on in verse 11. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundations of the house of the Lord was laid. 
But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of joyful shout from the sound of people's weeping, for the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. And this is a shadow of what once was in terms of the temple, but more than anything, this longing for God's holy special presence doesn't seem to show up. And so what do people do? Ultimately, people quit. And this is the moment in the story where they get all kinds of opposition from people around the city who are saying, don't build, don't restart, don't refresh, you're a threat to us. And we get a gap here for about 20 years where God's people say, man, I thought I could experience something by showing up to church. Nothing seemed to happen. So I'm just going to go live my life. And they do that for 20 years. And they show up occasionally, but the temple is not built. They just have a foundation. They just have an altar. And they go and they live their life. And they said, I thought I could find something, and I didn't seem to find it. So I'm just going to go live my life. And then in chapter 5, verse 1, something happens. In chapter 5, verse 1, we start to hear that two different prophets start to speak. These prophets are both Haggai and Zechariah, and they speak to this people who have walked away from following the Lord for longing for his presence. You'll read that in chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, they prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah in the name of the God of Israel who was with them. Then Zerubbabel, son of Sheatil, and Jeshua, the son of Zodiac, arose and began to rebuild the house. That is in Jerusalem. And the prophets were with them, supporting them. And you got to wonder, what were these prophets saying? Like for 20 years, the people were like, yeah, I'm going to kind of do my own thing over here. What did the prophets say that inspired everyone to rebuild and relong for this holy special presence of God? Let's go Haggai chapter 1, verse 3. If you got a Bible, turn there and let's hear what Haggai had to say to these people who were living their own life. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? He's saying, is it a time for you to go live however you want in your nice home while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And I want you to hear this. This is so fascinating. He says, you have sown much and have harvested little. You eat but you never have enough. He says, you drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. You ever been there in life where you're kind of trying to do your own thing and God's really not at the center of it. And no matter what you try, it's not fulfilling and it's not satisfying. He said, you can try to go be a good husband if you want. You can try to be a good wife. You can try to do your best at work. And you can try to build your own little community and your own satisfying career. And you can do all the things and your soul is still going to long for something more. This is what happens when you don't have the presence of God. And this is what's been happening for 20 years. And he's saying, you've got all the things. 
You've got your house. You've got your job. He says, you have an income, but it's not satisfying to you. You need one thing. You need God's presence. You need to gather with his people. You need the glory of the Lord. So let's rebuild. Let's restart. And let's see if God's glory will show up. Verse 7 It says, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I might take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. He says, you're trying to get the good life without the presence of God and it's not working. So in an act of resilience, they listen to him. In chapter 5 and chapter 6, you're going to read that they rally the troops and everyone's like, all right, we're looking for the glory of God. We're looking for his special presence. And they rebuild the whole thing and they do it quickly and they rebuild the temple very similar to how Solomon built. But at the end of chapter 6, they rebuild... They have all the festivals. They sacrifice all the animals. They're longing for God's presence. They're longing for His glory to show up. And nothing happens. And they're wondering, God, where's your presence? Like, what's going on here? Something's missing. And it's going to become incredibly obvious what's missing as we read chapters 7 through 10. As you get to chapter 7, there's a pretty big break between chapter 6 and 7. In chapter 7, we're introduced to a new guy, Ezra. And Ezra comes on the scene about 60 years after Zerubbabel first took this group of people back. And he goes in, as Ezra's on the scene, he has a longing from the Lord. He's been praying to the Lord, and God gives him a desire. And he has a desire for two things. For one, he has a desire to go back because he's in Persia. He wants to take the 900-mile trek, and he wants to bring the glory of the temple in how it was built with all the, if you will, accoutrements, the gold, the silver, um, all the, the furniture. Like, because when Babylon came in, they stripped the temple of everything, and that was still missing from the temple. So he wants to restore it to its former glory. But more than just the temple, he wants the people's hearts to be restored. He wants the people to know the law. He wants the people to experience the presence of God because he heard something from the prophet Haggai. Haggai, as he was speaking and he was saying these things, he said some other things which are pretty fascinating. He says, something's going to happen here. God's presence is going to dwell here and it's going to be better. This house will be better than Solomon's house. If you still have your finger in Haggai, turn to chapter 2, verse 4 and listen to what he says about this peace that people are longing for. He says, be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I have made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. So he's talking to a people who are discouraged, and he's saying, no, 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 guys. Like, I'm still here. I'm going to do something. Fear not. Verse 6, for thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, 
declares the Lord of hosts. So here's Ezra, and he's like, man, like I want my people to have this peace. I want my people to know God. I want my people to have this special presence. I want these people to experience God's glory. So in Ezra chapter 7, Ezra asks the king, again, a pagan Persian king, and he says, I want to go and I want to restore and I want to rebuild. And the Persian king says, whatever you want, I'll give you. And God shakes the king and he shakes the nations of the earth. And God says, here, here's the gold. Here's the silver. Here's the furniture. Here's the entourage. Here's my protection. If anyone tries to stop you, they will be killed or banished. You have my full protection. And so Ezra goes with an entourage of people. He makes the 900-mile trek. He gets to Jerusalem. And when he gets there, he's devastated. Because what does he see? When he gets to Jerusalem 60 years later, he sees people who are showing up to church, but their lives outside of Sunday look nothing like their worship Sunday morning. And he's absolutely distraught. Turn your Bibles to Ezra chapter 9, verse 6. He says, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, My God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. So he's talking about the history of this nation. We have not obeyed you. We have not followed you like we should. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hands of the kings of the land. He's like, hey, we have been slaughtered. We have been exiled to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. Verse 8, but now, he's talking about this moment. He says, for a brief moment. Favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery for we are slaves. He recognizes we're still slaves. Persia is still over us, but God has given us favor and he said, go back, rebuild, long for my presence Verse 9, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in the land of Judah and Jerusalem. Verse 10, and now, O our God, what shall we say after this? He's like, look at what you've done for us, God. Like, we are slaves. We deserve nothing. Like, we are under Persian rule. And the Persian ruler said, go back, rebuild. And what did we do in response? We have forsaken your commandments. So here's Ezra, and he's going, what was all this word that I heard from Haggai? Because Haggai said, the glory of this temple is going to be better than Solomon's. And I got here, and I see that he shook heavens and earth. I see that he shook all the nations. He shook the king. I have the treasure the king gave me who does not love the Lord. I have the entourage. I got to the place, but I don't see the glory. I don't see the obedience. I don't see his presence. What was all this talk of greater glory? What was all this talk of eternal peace? Was Haggai wrong? Did Ezra misunderstand? See, what Haggai was speaking to was not this temple, was not this moment. Haggai speaking to a moment 500 years in the future. He's speaking to a better temple 
and a better kingdom. See, what Haggai is talking about when he says, you will get peace unlike any other. You will get a kingdom unlike any other. This temple will come, will be better than Solomon's. He's not talking about this rebuilding going on right now. He's talking about when Jesus comes. And this is what's so sweet about Christmas. When Jesus comes, he comes and he restores in ways that are so much better than the old temple because no longer is the presence of God in one place, but the presence of God is going back to what he wanted in Exodus 19. When God says, I want to be with you, but we were terrified and God's presence is no longer in a place, but for those who love the Lord, God's presence is in a people, right? So what matters for God's presence isn't going to a physical place to try to find him anymore, but this new temple is God's presence in my heart. So what I do outside of Sundays matters as much as what I do inside of Sundays because God's presence is not here, it's here. And this is what Haggai is speaking to. Paul says it. He says it in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. We are God's building. He says in verse 16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? So if God's spirit is in me, then what's going on with this gathering? Now, what's so special about this, and why is it that sometimes this gathering feels so good, and why is it that this gathering sometimes feels so mundane, right? Why is that? This gathering is so beautiful because it doesn't matter where you gather. It doesn't matter if you're in a nice building with great lights and nice slides and fun, warm music and a decent speaker. Like, none of that matters, What matters is God's presence is in our hearts. God's presence is here. So it's good no matter what. It's good two weeks ago when I'm in a basement huddled in hiding, gathering with people. It's good because God's there. That's what makes it so sweet. And why is it so mundane sometimes? It's so mundane because the reality is I'm mundane. Right? It's mundane because I have this weird mix of you and I are still slaves to this world, very much like what Haggai was saying. He says, you are still slaves. I'm still a slave to this world. And it's mundane when I don't recognize how great God's love is for me. Right? So when I leave here and I'm like, ah, that wasn't really that great of a service, what I'm ultimately saying is I don't fully recognize how good God's love is. And oftentimes I don't recognize that because I've got all the mess in me and I don't see that I'm loved the way that God loves me. Sometimes this gathering is mundane ultimately because I don't realize how great God is. But here's the promise, and we're going to end on this. The final promise is that this temple is not going to be the final holding temple of God either. And that ultimately this temple is going to be destroyed and we're going to see God face to face. And how sweet and how beautiful is that? Um, I'm going to pray and I'm going to read this final picture of what this temple is going to be like. So would you pray with me? In Revelation 21, we read these words. Where John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God 
prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will not be veiled in a sin-marked body as my own, but he will be with us in his full presence. And verse 4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. God, there will be a day when the temple is not a dirty tent tabernacle. It's not a temple that Solomon built. It's not a temple that Zerubbabel built. It's not a temple that Ezra helped adorn. It's not a temple that Herod restored and expanded. It's a temple that Jesus said, you destroy it and three days later I will build it. Jesus, where you came to earth, where you were killed, and in your life you tore that curtain in half and you said, the temple is in the hearts of those who believe in me. And one day, God, that temple will not be veiled in us, but we will see you face to face. And no longer will I have moments of this is pretty good, but this isn't great because I'm involved. But my sin will be gone, my tears will be gone, and I will be face to face with you. And in that, we have a whole lot to celebrate. Jesus, thank you for coming at Christmas. Thank you for establishing and restoring a new temple. And thank you for the story of Ezra who had a longing for your presence. And God, let us long for your presence as well. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's teaching from Northwest Hills Community Church. We hope you find ways to apply the gospel to your life. And be sure to check out our website, nwhills.com where you'll find ways to engage with us. And if you're able, we'd love to see you at church next Sunday. Thanks again for listening.